Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 107. And the Weekly Word Podcast is, as you all might know, as you are all probably familiar with, is about talking ultra-endurance athletics, ultra-endurance mindset, balancing the athlete version of yourself with our daily lives, with the overall version of ourselves, and all the challenges that run into that with being a professional in something other than the sport we're doing, in this case, endurance athletics, but also keeping in mind that it's a hobby. And many hobbies that we do are something we can be very passionate about and very motivated about, but we also want to keep that three-legged stool in mind of family and personal life being one leg, um, professional and work and career life and personal um, investment into getting a better career and um, work life. So that means education and continuing education. That's the other leg. And then finally, there's that self that our own leg of athlete, being an athlete, being a better version of ourselves, our self-awareness and our growth as people, as an athlete, and so forth. So balancing those three becomes a uh, interesting game because one gets too long and the balance is off. And I'm not talking about level, stool, and the platform that connects the three legs I'm talking about that it doesn't fall over. If one leg is too long, that stool will tip over. If one leg is too short, that stool will tip over. And that's why I think it's important to keep in mind that yes, the athlete version of ourselves is meaningful to us. And that hobby that we're doing called endurance athletics is meaningful to us. It can't be no leg of the stool. If it is of meaning to you, it is something we should address or not we you should address because it says something about you. Your interests, your hobbies, your things that you spend your available time on is something very, very important that we should recognize. And we pay attention to those things that uh, awaken our curiosity. And they reveal stuff about us, especially endurance athletics. It reveals not only what we're interested in, what we're passionate about, what bubbles up inside of us. But it also reveals a lot to the outside world about who we are, what we take um, as important, and what our values are. And any hobby, but especially endurance athletics, I feel we embark on a journey of self-discovery. Because while we're out doing those at, at miles and spending those hours running, and on the bike, or swimming, or rowing, or strength training, or rucking, or hiking, or long um, expeditions, or any type of endurance adventure that so many of you are on, there's time for us, and time in our head, and time for self-discovery, and time for self-growth, and time for self-awareness and time to go inwards versus just focus on our outwards. And yes, we do strength. Yes, we get fit. Yes, we get healthier. But also we get healthier on the inside. Our inner self becomes healthier. We spend time with it. And hopefully that those earbuds are off at times. Hopefully we're listening to nature. 
Hopefully we're connecting with that inner self of ours. Hopefully we have a chance to shut down the noise and um, tune out all the static, static and find something within us as we're on that long bike ride, as we're on that long trail run, as we're on that long hike, or even as we're on that long lake swim or ocean swim, that we open that portal to, portal to our inner self and can hear what our true higher self, our true self is saying to us. And the value of that, finding out who we truly are and what's important to us and what our values are and what we can do with that and listening to that and applying that a little bit every day. You know, there's a lot of talk about how we want to find our true calling in life and therefore be more satisfied and happy and feel complete with our day to day. And I believe, as I've said before, that athletics allows for us to listen for that because we have to be so present and in the moment while we're training, it allows for the higher consciousness, for the self to speak to us because our small mind, our busy mind is busy doing the activity, the running motion, the cycling motion, the swimming motion, the you know, whatever it is we're doing. And there is an opportunity. That's why I feel that we have these creative bursts and strikes and aha moments, because again, the small mind is busy doing the cycling motion. It still is paying attention to riding a bike, to running and doing what it's doing. And so that self-discovery in our endurance efforts and in our hobby that we chose as endurance athletics becomes so, becomes so important. And yes, these hobbies, this endurance training will not change the world. We're not we're looking to make the world a better place by doing some of this, but the better version of ourselves that comes out from that and how we contribute to our community, to our loved ones, to our work, to ourselves, how we treat ourselves in that and not judge ourselves, but feel good about ourselves has a positive effect on everything around us, on that world around us, on that community, on that, um, those that are starting the sport or those in the community that you're helping with the sport or those that you're contributing to in so many other ways with a positive mindset and attitude and joy and vitality. And again, a better athlete version of ourselves contributes to the overall better version of ourselves. And that only gives positive energy and better outcomes to us in our day to day. So oh, there's our... Um, <laughs> weekly word sermon um, opening to what we're going to talk about this week. Variety of emails I go into. Again, I'm almost caught up and I'm almost on my last, uh, most recent email. I think I only have two remaining after this podcast. So that's going to be, um, that's going to feel good to be caught up. But also I'm finishing up into Alaska, man. I talk a little bit about that today. And I'm going to talk, uh, not on this podcast, but one I'm going to record next week about race plan and thoughts and how I will go about Alaska Man before I go about Alaska Man. 
and therefore hopefully contribute to how all of you might go about racing and planning and strategy and mindset for something that's completely unfamiliar to me. So I talked this week also about how showing up is not half the work. I, I strongly believe that we have a better outcome. And I talk about it in a way that... Um, contradicts something I talk about later, that when we're tired or on jet lag or life gets in the way, how we just need to train easy in with a good mindset towards the next workout. The two should not be confused because just going to a workout, showing up and thinking that's half the work already sets us up for failure. And I go into that. But when we're already fatigued and life stress gets in the way or work projects or family keeps us up or we have newborns or whatever it is, there's so many different circumstances why we might not be able to get into training as ideally or at the perfect time of day or we're stuck um, due to a variety of reasons to have to do it at, in the late at night or in the wrong time zone or in a, in a bizarre location. Those are the ones we want to take easy because our intentions were true and pure and we're getting it done but we want to again set ourselves up for the best possible outcome of training and adaptation down the road whereas if you go to workouts if you go to a swim workout if you go into a cycling workout or if you go to a run workout or if you have that intention or that mindset going in of saying well showing up is half the work you're already limiting your positive influence on having the best possible workout. And that's the differentiation between the two things I talk about this week. Yeah, and then mainly we dive into emails, lots of them, a variety of different topics, a variety of different um, thoughts, and hopefully you find them all um, beneficially for you. And yeah, we can grow from there. So enjoy this week. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And here we go. I came home from swim practice today and I had a conversation with one of the athletes on that deck, on that pool deck. And what really frustrated me, because it's something I've heard a lot, and that is showing up is half the work. And it's something he just said on the side. And he wasn't, isn't one of my athletes. He was just an athlete there. He might even be a triathlete. I'm not sure. He's part of our master's group. I've seen him a few times before. But he's not the only one. It's a common phrase to use, especially as you become a master's athlete, one that is trying to fit in the training, trying to fit in the exercise while working and family and other life responsibilities and so forth. But I thought about that a moment because it immediately it struck me that I don't agree with showing up is half the work. Showing up is half the work is a cop out. It basically means you just have to show up and that will make you successful in having exercised. Yes, it does. If that is the task, once again, and that is to just get the blood flowing to do something to get exercise, then showing up is half the work. But what does that really mean, showing up is half the work? Just going through the motions, no intention, no purpose, no reasoning, no questioning, no thought, no technique, no focus 
Is that the half that you're not doing? What does showing up is half the work mean? Is it the inertia to get to the pool, to start the workout, to start the run, to start the bike, to start the training that you plan to do? Maybe. And then showing up, it gives you the energy, the impetus, and then after a warm-up, you can settle in and do the things with the proper guidance, maybe, that was planned. Now, of course, if a coach is on deck and gives you that guidance, you don't know the training plan prior. Therefore, you do go in with a little bit of a mindset of showing up as half the work. Then once I'm there through warm up and I hear the main set or hear the guidance for today's workout, whether that's at a track or cycling intervals, let's say, or a group ride, whatever, um, then that's a different story too. But even then, even then, I would like to know that if you're training versus exercising, you already know what kind of quality or distance work or aerobic training or anything that you're doing today. What is my purpose? What is on those index cards? When I go to bed tonight and I think about my day tomorrow and how I, what it means for it to be successful, showing up is not half the work because that means you are reacting. You're not proactive. That means you are going and seeing what will happen. Showing up is half the work. I really don't like that. And I think that's why it's important that when we think of terms like that as endurance athletes, as ultra endurance athletes, as any athlete, we don't want to go into anything with that mindset with that mantra with that approach because showing up is not half the work showing up is while it's good for exercise it is not training let's constantly remember that showing up with intention showing up the clarity with a purpose to the workout to an understanding of how we want it to go with a, an image a, a vision of defining it as successful Today it will be successful if, when I do this, today's swim workout, although I don't know the sets, I plan to do it with high intensity, high quality because my other workout today is aerobic. My strength workout today is this. My workout tomorrow therefore is aerobic or is intervals or is quality. Understanding before we go into our training day or the night before, and how the workouts that we are doing, that we have listed, even if there's no detail to it, how we want to execute them, how we want to come out of them, how we want to go to bed tomorrow night knowing we're better today or better tomorrow for, than we were today, right? We have progressed. What have I done today to get me ever so much closer to my goal, to my desired outcome? to that achievement, to that adventure, to that experience, to that podium, to that result, to that time, whatever it is for you. But showing up is half the work is not going to keep you in that focus, keep you within that intention. I speak to athletes every day via email, via text, via WhatsApp, as well as via the phone. And they're constantly surprised, and we've talked about this before on many podcasts, on wow, this really requires a lot more organization. 
in this ultra training, in this Ironman training, in this 50, 50 mile, 50K, whatever, 70.3 training. I didn't realize it was that much. Or they don't admit that, but they fall off. Go communication silence or other things in their three-legged stool come up and things just start crumbling. And I try to pull back as many athletes as I can because I say, listen, if you go about this with intention, with clarity, with purpose, with desired outcomes, with mini steps and goals, with stringing together a variety of good days in order to say, okay, you know what? I had five really good days of training. I'm okay with two or three days of doing it easy or aerobically so that I can stay more focused on work, family, or other priorities or things that eat my time. You could also say, well, I have 72 hours, I have 96 hours, I have four days of time to really do some work, but the fifth day I need to take off because it's a family day or I need to do this for my, with my family or at work or project or whatever it is. There's many ways to deliberately and with intention get through the training and not have it creep into so many aspects of our lives. And this is the bigger um, um, issue, problem, task, action item I've noticed with a lot of people is that they sort of wander. Showing up is half the work. They uh, sort of meander into the workout. They sort of don't know what they're going to do on today's run. Or they just sort of roll out on their bike. Or it takes them forever to get ready in the morning. Or they need... That is the, the lack of crispness and specificity and intention that does give a bigger impression that you're not very organized on this training. And this is, my, this is what we keep talking about. We have to be organized. Why? Because we all went pro in something other than this sport, this hobby, this, this experience, this journey, this training that we're on. And so it becomes even more important to give the impression, to give the clarity to everybody else around us to show how organized, how meaningful, how focused, and with intention we're doing this. That all doesn't fit with showing up as half the work. I don't want anyone, any of those of you training, not just exercising, training, showing up, saying showing up is half the work, because it's not. Showing up is if you start that workout process, going to the pool, getting in the water, that's already with intention. That's already with a planned outcome. That's already with knowing what it is when I leave this pool, how I want to feel, what it is I want to get out of it. And you guys might roll your eyes, go, come on, you don't do that for every workout. Actually, I do. I do. And I want, would love for my athletes to all do the same thing as well. Do I do it with every single workout? No, because there's not a necessary intention in every workout. There's many longer rides or longer runs or longer swims. Like today's swim, for example, was an aerobic swim, was time-based. It was getting ready for open water season. It's one of those things they call it Tahoe Tuesdays because we have the Trans Tahoe Relay coming up. And Within that, we did um, eight minutes and six minutes and eight minutes of time to swim. So you just turn your brain off and swim. You're not thinking about distance, pace or something. You're thinking about form and glide and so forth. 
So it's a very, it's an ideal workout. I knew prior that this was a Tahoe Tuesday, that it's going to be an aerobic, relaxed workout where I'm going to focus on form and fix things on my stroke and distance per stroke and glide and integrate some light kicking and just reconnect with my freestyle. That's for me, right? That doesn't mean that applies to everybody. But again, that was my intention. I knew that Tuesdays and this afternoon's run is going to be um, on trail and I'm going to do some leg turnover and I have specific sections on the trail that I know I'm going to go faster and do it with some um, crispness and form and light feet and turnover and boom, explosiveness. And then I'm going to shut it down again. I know that already. And that's my workouts today. And I have my quality session on Thursday. I have a long ride tomorrow. All that, there's a very clear outcome. How do I want to feel at the end of my five-hour ride tomorrow? I want to feel in control. I want to feel that the last hour wasn't more taxing than the first hour. I want to feel on top of my pedal stroke, keep pedaling easy. I don't care about the wattages or the heart rates because I know I'll keep it easy. But I want to keep it crisp with regards to a good pedal stroke, with an efficient pedal stroke, with being comfortable in the aero position, with being able to hit some rollers and risers and not be completely gassed and flat at the top of them or on the other side of them, but just calm, smoothly and in control and good energy levels roll over them. Sure, the wattages and effort goes up for that, but then come out the other side, settle back into my arrow position, and keep pedaling as if it was nothing. So yes, there is a clarity and an intention behind every workout, and showing up is half the work is not how that works. And however we want to explain that, describe that, I don't believe in that. That's exercising versus training. Okay, let's dive into some more email questions. Chris, I wanted to reach out and congratulate you on your podcast. I'm relatively new, but enjoy it. I've started uh, following the principles of your 50K training plan. I have a trail marathon in September, which has several steep climbs and lots of rocks and roots. So my thought was training for a 50K. So my thought was training for a 50K would put me in better condition to enjoy the race. That's very true. Um, you know, when you're talking a trail marathon of 26 miles and a 50K of 31 to 32 miles, it sometimes depends on the race and the location. Um, being ready for something a little bit longer is always a great idea and a great approach. Um, a lot of coaches and training methodologies work around this concept. Um I'm working through week four and did have a, co a couple of questions. One, if I was going to take a recovery week and an endurance week prior to starting the next four-week block, does it make sense to do the endurance week first and then recovery week, or do I have it backwards? Um, yes, I would try to do the endurance week post any type of build. And I do this in triathlon. I do this in a variety of different sports of how I coach also in, in the training methodology. And that is because endurance week is usually high volume, but not high intensity. Um, as a matter of fact, I back off most of the intensity in an endurance week and then just increase the volume, the time on the legs or the time doing the specific sport activity or activities. Um, 
I even sometimes or quite frequently, I wouldn't say all the time, but I wouldn't say not at all, um, do back off of strength that week and maybe do some core conditioning and so forth. But overall, it's about doing big volume, repetition, efficiency, economy, and quite honestly, um, mental training. Being out there on a tired body, not necessarily, again, from the intensity, but just from the hours, is a huge mental training aspect. And being a little groggy, being a little uh, moody, being a little flat, um, being hungry, being thirsty, um, trying to convince yourself to work through the training is a big component of the Endurance Week is a big component of endurance training in general and um, ultra endurance training for sure. And so it's important to wrap our minds around that and execute these bigger weeks. And and especially when we're in the midst of them, it is quite hard. So let's take a look here. Um, Yeah, so and then the recovery week. So after that endurance week, really have a big recovery week. Now, the 50% rule definitely applies, but I would not do that off the endurance week. I do it off the volume I was typically doing. Um, In a general format, what could you do about an endurance week if you don't have a format, let's say, or a training plan that I've worked through with you? Usually, um, other coaches call big training week. Other coaches have endurance week, a variety of different terms for it but I would not go much over 25, max 30% increase in volume that week based off the averages. So for example, if your typical training and your phase, that phase of training is about 14 hours a week, let's say, on average, it could be 13 and a half, could be 15, whatever. But you're basically averaging 14 hours for those four weeks three weeks, whatever, multiple weeks here. Um, That 30%, that 25% increase should be around, you know, uh, three extra hours. Now, keep in mind, so if you do those three extra hours, right, let's say three to three and a half extra hours. So now we're at 17, almost 18 hours maybe. But if you take the quality out and replace that with more aerobic zone two work, and you take the strength out, and you take um, other components out, and just make it all zone two aerobic work, those hours add up. Um, And again, that is a good place to sort of work into an endurance week, that you increase it by 25 to 30%, and then the recovery week is 50% based off the standard that you were training in that phase two. So if we use our example of 14, that recovery week should look around seven-ish, eight-ish hours. So um, number two, as mentioned, this course has several steep climbs and tons of hills. Would it make sense to substitute in a hill repeat workout for either leg speed or change speed day, or perhaps just find the hilliest trails on my long run to get more accustomed to the hills? Well, as I talked about in the 50K training plan, there is a hill day and hill repeats in there. So hopefully you're doing those. But overall, 
what's important too is to have in that strength plan um, some strong hamstring development work because going up and down hills from trail running to hiking puts a lot of load on our calves, puts a lot of load on our knees, puts a load on a lot of load on our glutes. And if the hamstrings are weakly developed, that can quickly lead actually to knee injuries and issues like that. So in your strength work, in your core work, in your overall um, body durability, do include a variety of hamstring work that will help you dramatically in your training as well. Um, for steep alpine type of uh, um, running races, 100 milers, 50 milers, 50Ks, things like that, I would actually look into also doing a variety of step-ups. I've talked about step-ups here on the podcast before, but whether they're loaded or unloaded, it depends on what you're doing, how big the step-up is, where you're going to be in the mountains, and so forth. But step-ups, even a 12 to 15-inch height, which isn't anything that dramatic, um, is a very good um, way to build up the hiking, running up steep hills, as well as the downhills. Um, those step downs, and especially under load, creates the hip flexors and the strength and the core and the impact, the eccentric work on the muscles that you will need for um, mountainous 50K, 50 mile, 100K, 100 mile runs. And you know, many, many athletes and in their own space are always surprised how, despite outstanding fitness, aerobic fitness, um, and durability even, they overlook the aspect of hiking and hiking under load because a lot of the time you're carrying your vest and a variety of things and it just makes you stronger when you're not carrying that load with regards to training let's say you have 15 20 pounds in that pack and you don't have to carry that for your race makes you feel incredibly stronger but also the downhills uh, most mountain 50ks and 50 milers and surely 100 milers have long sustainable steep downhills and if you're not prepared for that that could make the rest of the run, let's say there's a long, steep downhill, three, four, five, six miles long coming off of a pass or something like that, that will completely shell your quads or really ask a lot of your hip flexors and so forth. Then come the uphill or the steady running section, your quads, your hips, your overall legs are smashed. And that's what we want to train for. That's what doesn't allow the fitness to display itself because you're stuck with that. So keep that in mind. Um, so to answer this person's questions, Brad's question, you know, I would not add more hills into it. That one time a week is plenty good. And then, yes, I would inc include some hilly runs into your long run, you definitely want to have a weekly, like I talked about in the training plan, simulation run. So when you do that simulation run, it might take some logistics and work or some driving time to get to the terrain or similar terrain where you can somewhat simulate your trail marathon in this case, or whatever race any of you are getting ready for. So hope that helps. I've received some um, email requests also on what it looks like to do a proper stretch cord 
work out. Now, I did bring this up and mention this as sets in the newsletter uh, three or four months ago, but um, I'll bring it up again here because, uh, by the way, those newsletters, I put them online on the website under newsletters on aimcoaching.com, and I think the last six months are up. Um, so it's always like a month or two lag by the time I put it up on the website, just so that those that have the that um, signed up for the newsletter have sort of exclusive access to whatever sponsor discounts or offers or information that's in there. But so the way I go about stretch cords, and it takes a while to build up your durability for stretch cords. It's not an easy. Um, exercise to do because we're doing swimming in water it allows for the muscles to adapt differently this is truly resistance training and it does create some soreness and fatigue and a different type of load on the shoulders and upper body and the lats in the back than if you were immersed in water um, and since you're only pulling your body weight through the water through thick liquid called water versus um, resistance training, which we try to simulate with stretch cords, it's a little bit different exercise. So keep that in mind. Don't overdo it here on the first one. When I typically start stretch cords, I would start with, let's say, six or eight sets of 25 only. Um, and in between each 25 or in between each sets, uh, a set, I would do some core work, some sit-ups and some, you know, Russian twists, um, some rows, things like that. And then I'll go back and do another set of sit-ups, uh, of stretch cords. Now, I do use stretch cords as a grind, um, which is not a lot of rest, working steadily and without lo long breaks. So I'll do 25 pulls. I'll right away jump to the mat, do um, 25 um, core-related movements. Then I'll, let's say, do 25 step-ups or calf raises or um, balancing work with legs. And then I'll go back to 25 stretch cords um, to continuous motion um, so that there's not a lot of recovery in between. So it's a, a durability and endurance, a strength endurance type of format. But once I'm comfortably at about four or five hundred um, stretch cords, so let's say eight sets of 50, uh, 10 sets of 50, um, similarly with a grind, then I'll use um, a sort of a swim um, workout format. And so what I think of is how many strokes per length do I swim? So let's count one arm. So if it takes me um, 25 strokes to swim the length of a swimming pool, 25 yards, um, I do 12 with one arm and or around there, let's say. That's pretty high turnover, but still, let's just say that for the number. So if I swim with one arm, 12 per length or 24 total, that means for a 100 freestyle, I'm doing 100 pulls. So it's sort of like that. It's a very similar, if your stretch cord is set up like that, um, with regards to it being flexible, not too hard to pull on, but just a smooth, light resistance. Nothing that you're looking for a strength workout, but more a technique-based repetition, um, um, fundamentals of movement, and a little bit of resistance within it, then you can simulate a swim workout really well. Um, for example, a 400 warm-up. So that's basically 
400 pulls. Um, and then, you know, so you, you just work through that. Um, six times 100 would be six times 100 pulls. Um, so it sort of it sort of works out pretty smoothly there. Um, for example, I take 12 strokes across a length, so six per arm. So when I do my 50, right, I'm pretty close to swimming 100. I'm doing a resistance of 100. So I'll get up to 1,000 to 1,200 pulls pretty quickly to if I'm looking to simulate, uh, replicate a swim workout. Um, oftentimes I use stretch cords to activate the swimming muscles, to, um, to recruit the proper form and movement through the channel. And then I can see it since I'm not in the water and I can focus on re-engaging, re-firing the proper stroke. Um, so I'll do, let's say a thousand pulls, um, in different ways, double arm, single arm, alternating arm, um, 25 on one arm only rest and 25 on the other arm only rest 25 uh, uh, 50 combo where you're doing both or alternating or alternating with a lot of rest there's a lot of ways to go about it but the main thing is is that you're doing your swim motion front of the stroke top of the stroke all the way through back to your hips and pushing through that you're doing that correctly while pulling on a resistance band like that. And don't get me wrong, um, it must be the right type of stretch cord. This is not resistance bands. That does not work for this type of training. Finney makes a good stretch cord um, and stretch cords with a Z is by far the best ones I've seen. Um, very portable, um, great to use when you're traveling and um, really helpful. I mean, I've had guys do it on their planes, um, their planes, that's the key word there, not on commercial planes, their planes. While they're traveling or they need to get somewhere, they just hook up a stretch cord in the aisle and there they did. They did an hour work, hour's worth of swim workout at you know 30,000 feet <laughs> while going somewhere. So yeah, and you can expand that in a variety of ways, you know? I mean, you can do your workouts of 1080 double arm pulls or uh, four times 10 left, 10 right, um, and then do that 10 times through. Um, so there's a lot of ways to go through it, but knowing how many strokes you pull for 25 and doing it per arm um, gives you a good idea on how to simulate a very normal swim workout. Also some rests in there. So let's say after every 100 pulls, you take a minute rest um, to sort of let the body recover. Again, it's more muscular, so you will need a little bit more rest and allow the arms to recover properly. But if it's too hard, as in you fail in your motions, then it means that your stretch cord is too difficult. Hi, Chris. Thank you for all the inspiration and info in your podcast. I missed the, this topic. If I missed this topic along the way, I apologize in advance. I'm approaching 50. So am I. <laughs> Aren't we all approaching 50? Uh, those of us who are past 50, I guess not. You're moving away from 50. But I think all of us under 50 are all approaching 50 and have rediscovered running about a year ago. I first learned about slower aerobic zone training in Rich Roll's book. So thanks to both of you for that. Yes. I've been working out at lower heart rates for some time now and 
up my distance, and for the most part, it has been great. I'm running distances I never imagined, although times are still relatively slow. I'm fairly new to Garmin. I recently purchased the Phoenix 5, and this morning I ran the zone in the zone for the first time in a while. The, yun, the run yielded a training status of unproductive, <laughs> along with corresponding drop in my VO2 max score. A little discouraging, although I'm still trying to navigate the intricate intricacies of a new device. Yeah, I don't like those numbers. Um, let me finish the question before I go off on a tangent here. Um, one, is it too, is too much slow running detrimental to my training? And two, if I continue to train in the aerobic zone, how do I know when I should start kicking it up and picking up my pace? All right, well, yes, I mean, let's not forget, there is definitely a space where you can run too easy. And I define running too easy as a place where your form, you're plodding along and the effectiveness of actually running and how your feet land and how your hips are placed and how your hamstrings are engaged because you're not lifting your feet properly behind your running stroke and so forth are ineffective. And so that plod is probably too easy. Now, many of you will say, well, Chris, I, that's where my zone two requires me to be. Totally fine. I'd rather you walk distances and then go from there to um, pick windows of five minutes or three minutes that you can actually run properly in the zone and then go back to walking if it elevates out of the zone. Um, but for most of you, running in the zone should be possible. Um, especially after you've done some running frequency, um, not just starting off and um, you don't have other health issues. Oftentimes, it's hard to keep our heart rate down when we're dehydrated, when we're not fueled, when it's late in the day and other stressors in the day, when we're coming off the bike and we're already fatigued from that or fatigued from a variety of other workouts or et cetera, et cetera. There's so many reasons why our heart rate could be suppressed um, or not want, or jumpy and want to sit up there and constantly move out of the zone, which is fine. That's totally fine. That's part of the process. But Eventually, gradually, you'll get fitter and fitter due to frequency, and this become, running in zone two will become easier and easier. But that being said, with these watches, we can't have it all. And what that means is we can't live by the watch. We can't live by the heart rate. We can't live by the pace. If we do one, we have to do them all. So do you listen to your watch when it says your recovery time is 38 hours or 50 hours from a long run and therefore you don't actually work out for two days no so if you only listen to the watch for certain things you can't ask it to be perfect or applicable in all these aspects um, and those zones are based off of masses masses and masses of people and a general um, equation that keeps the the companies that put these zones and watches out there safe. And um, it's based off of a general populace that it has shown if you're around here, 180 minus your age and all that stuff, or putting in a lactate threshold number or putting in some data based off of some averages, you should train here. 
it, it's, it's something I don't subscribe to. Instead, know what you need to do. Listen to your body. Pay attention to how you're running. If it feels easy, <clears throat> and let's say you're a little bit out of your heart rate zone, use the data over many, many days. Um, let's say on the weekend or in cooler temperatures or on a flatter run, you're dead in your heart rate zone of whatever you need to run that day, zone two, zone three, zone four, whatever. Well, then that's fine. Then you have a logical, clear-cut understanding of why the heart rate today may be hot, maybe hilly, maybe dehydrated, maybe other stressors are affecting it. And you just take, you know what you're doing. You can listen to your body. I'm going easy enough. Um, I'm keeping it smart. It's conversational pace. I'm on the low end of that zone or whatever it is. But zones and heart rates are there to guide you. They're not the end-all be-all. And to live slave to the watch and the data that it gives us and actually live in judgment of it is even worse. It's a watch. It's not, um, it doesn't have your best interest in mind all the time. So a, a run yielding unproductive status, what does it know? What does that mean? What is that? How is that even of something that I pay attention to? I don't pay attention to the recovery and the data and the good jobs and the badge marks and the new thresholds on all the different websites and watches and inputs that they give you. Therefore, I don't, you know, I wouldn't worry about it too much if I were you. And then is too much slow training detrimental to my training? How do I know when I need to move zones? This is an interesting component, and I bring that up in the newsletter this month, and that is a um, the run test follow-up. So many of you know about the five-by-one-mile running test. Well, if you take the top end of zone three, low end of zone four, sort of the dead zone in there, because I usually put a five-beat gap in there for many of you, most of you, and those of you that have real zones from not just doing the five-by-one-mile test, but truly lactate threshold test, it's a very specific data point. Um, I assign for most of my athletes, and I'm going to write out this protocol on the newsletter this month, the June newsletter, in case you're looking for it, um, that I would say if you want to know how you're improving, and I've discussed this before, you do a run test follow-up in a very tight heart rate range at that number, and you do it every six weeks, every four weeks. Heck, you can do it every two weeks if you want. The changes might not be very dramatic, but at least you have an opportunity to set up a consistent input, same heart rate, same track or same location, and repeat that. And you're going to get enough data points that over time, the same heart rate will show you a faster pace very just typical to a lot of the mafetone tests and field tests. But again, it allows you to go fast enough, upper zone three, low zone four, to really run. Nothing hard because it's only one mile repeats at that number. Um, it's not quite 10K pace, so it's slower than that. But it's not an easy pace. It's definitely, it's definitely you're, you're surely stepping into running. But it's enough to put forth good form, good technique, good effort. You feel good about the workout, you get that one minute rest, same thing, and you can chart this data over time and watch your pace go down at that same heart rate. And that is how you'll have a better understanding of, well, at the same heart rate, now I'm a minute faster or a minute and a half faster 
for the mile, it might be time to test your five by one mile um, repeats again. In general, I say to test those five by one mile repeats every three months, I would do them um, just to make sure those zones are still accurate, which in many cases, they don't necessarily change because this isn't a lactate test. It's hard to really change the data that much. But again, what's fun is at your perceived 10K effort, your 95% effort, um, how much faster you go, how much better you tolerate it, how much harder you can push, and in some cases, how much higher of a heart rate you can push. Because again, creating more blood plasma, blood volume, better delivery mechanisms, better economy of motion, better efficiency in your running stride, all those things play out every three, four months. So it's fun to do. But yeah, that run test follow-up will be in this month's newsletter along with that cycling test that I talked about. Okay, let's jump into another email here. Hi, Chris. I can't thank you enough for the podcast. I know you're planning on releasing your 70.3 training plan, maybe this week or the week after. And I do have to say I can't wait. I am sorry it has taken so long. You sent me this May 28th. It's about three weeks ago, so I'm <laughs> trying to keep up. I wanted to get through all these questions first and really catch up with all of you um, with regards to a lot of this racing, uh, these inputs, a lot of these questions, because they are applicable to the early summer here. And I want to be able to not fall too far behind on these questions for the podcast. I'm right now about two weeks behind, about five questions remaining. And I feel pretty good that then we can dive into some bigger multi-podcast um, topics again. So I apologize for that, but there's also a reason around it. Um, I've been training for my first 70.3, which I'm scared and nervous about. Good. On the far edge of what we currently deem possible. Remember, that will change as you get fitter and more familiar with it. As you move, as Jordan Peterson says, from chaos to control. Right now, it's unfamiliar. It's your imagination flows with how difficult it may be and what could go wrong chaos, right? But once you've done it and are fit enough and start understanding what it is to do the event as well as to train for it, you move into control. And when we lose the chaos too much, we're in our comfort zone and we need to find something new that creates that chaos, that creates that struggle. So it becomes pretty interesting in that respect, watching human nature unfold in a lot of these ways as I coach people, as I talk to people, because they are constantly moving from chaos to control. But, or excuse me, Jordan Peterson says chaos and order as we move from chaos to order. So um, I've injured my knee back in April, which was due to my bike not fitting correctly. Very, very common insight very common comment. And to this day, there's not an athlete that doesn't start with me. Um, at least every fourth or fifth athlete, I need to change their bike fit. And despite getting pro fits, despite the bike shop guaranteeing their fit, despite um, the bike shop or wherever they go saying yes, despite fits for you, it is a constant struggle to highlight the importance of a good bike fit. The time you spend on a bike getting ready for a 70.3 or even an Ironman, of course, an Ironman a lot more, 
is there's so many repetitions on that leg in that circular motion that even the slightest detail that's not right will compound an injury, will create some sort of flare-up, will the, the, the pain point will come because it will be highlighted just due to the repetitions of a slightly wrong position. So, you know, bike fit is one of those questions that it's hard to use here on the podcast and to help and give tips for. Um, it's a visual thing. It's a, it's a, a, a thing that good fitter can see within um, 20 seconds on a side view and a front view angle. And so, yeah, if you are wondering about your bike fit, you should always get a few different opinions. There's some great bike fitters out there. A lot of people um, that really know what they're talking about. But for those people, there's probably eight times as many people that have no clue. And just using your inseam or standing over a new bike or whatever it is, um, is not getting your bike fit. And what's frustrating too is in some cases, not all cases, I love small bike shops and in general bike shop industry is a hard industry to uh, be in. But in some cases also the bike shop is selling you a bike, getting rid of inventory or trying to sell you a bike that doesn't really fit you. And that's also frustrating. The other thing I'll say is, and I've said this before on the podcast, is that it's very, very, very hard. I mean, the chances are almost zero to make a road bike work for a triathlon fit, for a road bike to fit in the aero position. It just, the geometry doesn't work. Now you think you can get down there. You think it might work. But the angles, the hip angles, the torque on your knee, where the seat position is over the um, cranks and the center of the cranks and relative to your handlebars, it just doesn't work. And so if you have any visions of putting yourself into an aero position on a road bike, be very, 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 very careful because most likely you will get knee issues. You will get painful lower back, glute um, hamstring, a variety of different issues will uh, come up again, because time in that position over many repetitions will create issues. So um, that's a huge piece of advice I hope you take from me. Now, I'm not trying to get you to buy a triathlon bike. I'm just saying if you're going to do a triathlon on a road bike, don't expect to be successful in an aero position um, for very long. Don't expect to put arrow bars on there and think it'll work. Can you put your hands in the drops? Yes. Um, is that very arrow? No. And anybody who's been on a road bike in a triathlon and seen how people with way less effort zip by them in an arrow position understand why there's triathlon bikes. It's a huge, huge advantage and why the, the product that the bike line was created, invented, applied. So anyway, um, so I've injured my knee in April due to my bike not fitting correctly. I'm back at it and doing well. Good. My question is due to the injury and time off, I'm worried that I'm not in a good spot to do a 70.3. Remember, define good spot. If this is about finishing. That should be your first question. Um, and then do you want to be competitive? Do you want to hit a certain time? Or is if, you're, is if it's your first, 
Just go through the motions. Just enjoy the day. Just observe and take it all in. Just make new friends and be the rookie. Be vulnerable. Be completely new out there and smiling and joyful and grateful that you're even doing it. And take it all in. Because guess what? When you do your first, you can always get faster. I had an athlete email me the other day. Hey, Chris, any feedback, insights um, on my result of my first 70.3? Big keyword there on the result. Um, of course, I had insights regard to fueling or hydration or um, you know pacing strategy or if, if the execution wasn't done properly. But because it was first, it is first, it was basically only some fueling, hydration guidelines, some breakfast, and some overall thoughts with how to go about this. But it was his first. And so I had no thoughts on his results. It means nothing. It was your first. It's a line in the sand. As we grow, as soon as he does another one, and the relative improvements from the first one to the second one, that becomes the conversation. That becomes the analysis. That becomes the feedback. But right now, it's just a number. It's just an event. It's just a baseline in the sand. Um, and because it's not really like a test or a data point, um, yeah, you can go versus the age group and percentages and so forth. And, you know, you could have biked easier and run harder, or you could have biked harder and run easier, or you could have swam like this. It doesn't mean anything. It's all race over race. It's how we are on the journey. It's how we are in our progression. How am I getting better? But if we only have one data point, no input. So um, that I'm not in a good spot to do a 70.3, so define good spot. I totally agree with what you say about being overtrained for your race, and I feel like I wouldn't be. <laughs> the longest bike ride so far to date has only been two hours. I do not have a computer device on my bike, so I'm not sure how far I've gone. But I would assume from my watch, it was about 25 to 26 miles. The run is fine, as I just ran 11 miles the past weekend. Time was 1.30. So each swim, the swim, I've been swimming three times a week, anywhere from 29 to 3,600 meters. Clearly fine on the swim, clearly fine on the run. Each week, my plan has been three bike rides, three swims, and four runs. I have about eight weeks to the race, which is now five weeks, which I'm assuming I'll have one week of taper. Would you think seven weeks is enough to compete in a 70.3 well? Again, define well. Or should I hold out for a later race this year? No matter what, always race. You're learning so much. Now, of course, if you're injured, if you're not even sick, it's hard to... But because again, it's your first, you know, if you didn't train a lot for it, or if you were sick leading up to it, or if you were injured in this case, leading up to it, that you could do more, that your best version isn't out there yet. But what we learn, even to this day, when I do races, it reminds me of so many things. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. And I got to incorporate that. And oh, yeah, that's really a blind spot and so forth. That's me after, you know, 35 or 40 plus Ironmans and I don't know how many 70.3s. So every time you race, in this case, you, Natalie, have an opportunity to just go out there and learn, it'll make your late season race that you'll sign up for so much more 
um, I wouldn't even say enjoyable, but um, so much better because you have the inputs of a race can take that back to your training and your joy and how much you um, enjoyed your day and going about the racing and transition and other people and location and the nervous jitters and the morning start and your breakfast and your fueling, your hydration, all the work that you learned that day and you put forth that day now gets to be applied in training. And when you're fitter later in the season, you're going to be very happy that you have this embedded knowledge from the first race. And sure, you'll have nerves again, but again, there'll be some familiarity around it. There will be um, order to that chaos. There will be familiarity to that chaos, right? There'll be comfort to that chaos. And that's what you want to tap into and keep in mind. Whether I give you a training plan or not, it's all about the fundamentals are about that. Learn in your first, learn in even many, every race we learn, but set yourself up in the first one to just soak it all up like a sponge, arms wide open, see what happens and then go, wow, I do need to bike more or um, I'm surprised the bike wasn't as tiring as I thought. It went a lot better than I thought, but man, I was tired on the run. Well, maybe you need to do some bike run work, bike to run, meaning running off the bike. All depends draw the line in the sand. That's half the fun. All right. And Matt sends me an email. Just found the podcast from Rich Rolls and it's great. So thank you. I just signed up, started up, excuse me. I have just started exercising again these past couple of years after a busy family time. I've completed a 70 mile sportive and a half marathon so far. I'm looking to do an Olympic triathlon and a 50k trail run next. Um, I was wondering how many big events do you recommend to aim for in a year? Well, in this case, it's unique to everybody. It depends on how much time you have, how much you have started exercising again these past couple of years. The definition of that, again, is very vague. So it's hard to know what your general state of fitness is and what kind of miles you've logged on your body. And this is less about the cycling than it is about the running and getting ready for a 50K um, with not a lot of running miles on it, on your body, let's say over the last two years, that is a big distance, a 31 mile trail race. Um, It requires a fair amount of training as I put forth in my training plan, but also the pounding and so forth. So we need recovery. And again, I've talked about this so many times and keep this in mind for your own training. What is your buildup over the past few years? Was it zero in swim, bike, run, whatever the sport it is? Or did you have a general level that you were at? And so therefore, you've gradually increased the volume over years in a healthy, sustainable way. Your body has responded well to it, ligaments, cartilage, skeletal structure, um, muscular structure, um, adrenal structure, um, energy-wise, metabolism, so forth, lean muscle mass, all those things. You've gone in a very healthy way to build to a point where you could say, yes, I can do a 50K. The Olympic triathlon is not as much. That's a three-hour event maybe, maybe a little bit more. But um, 
Whereas a 50K trail run, right? That we're talking about five, six, seven hours in some cases. So that's your bigger event. Can you do that in a season? For sure. Again, it depends on your past volume, your injury history, how your body holds up, um, your current body composition, right? If our body is still new to the endurance aspect, keep in mind, as it's becoming leaner and changing and muscle mass changes and things are completely moving around in our body with regards to um, adrenal states, hormonal states, how our body's reacting to lean muscle mass, different demands metabolically, along with structurally cartilage, ligament, bone structure, and so forth with regards to carrying our body composition differently, all this plays into what we're going to be able to handle. And if it goes too fast, we're going to pay a price at some point. But if it goes very gradual in a healthy, sustainable way, in a thoughtful, long-term fashion, your body can do amazing things, amazing things. I'll go from, you know, from couch to Ironman, sure, we, we hear about those things from couch to, you know, from overweight to marathon, from overweight to Ironman. The question there is, and, and the guidance I always look to give is sustainable. I don't want to lose you to um, after having achieved such an amazing goal, amazing outcome, amazing change, transformation to injury and frustration and lack of motivation and not sustainable lifestyle. And so it's important always to keep those things in mind. Give me five years, give me seven years, give me 10 years so that you continue on with this healthy, sustainable lifestyle, you continue to grow with the joy of it. And you remain in a positive place versus trying to just do an Ironman complete an Ironman check that off not because of an athletic achievement, but because of a self confidence achievement, and then go back to either difficulties in weight fluctuation, or difficulties in motivation. That's not what we want. We want a healthy, sustainable, long-term, applicable lifestyle to bring forth the daily vitality and inner growth, external growth of all this. There's so much to the best athletic version of ourselves that we don't want to overlook all the different benefits from self-exploration to growth, to contribution, to better version of ourselves. So something to keep in mind. So I'm sorry, Matt, in this case, that I don't have a more specific answer for you. But I was wondering how many big events do you recommend to aim for in a year? There's athletes that do two or three, you know, 50 and 100 milers. It depends. It depends on your background, your injury history, your sustainability with regards to training, with regards to what you do with your life currently, with regards to job and history, with regards to time available, recovery, um, hours available to train as well as recover. So much that goes into that conversation. And many of, many of my athletes know this, that it's also observing them. So we start off and we play with different volumes. We play with different types of workouts. I see how you're handling the load. 
And if not, we dial it back. We might go from double workouts three or four times a week to single workouts every day. We might up the volume. We might up the frequency. We might insert other things. We might learn that speed work only works during the week because on the weekends, we need to exhale and do longer stuff. I don't know. Everybody is so different, but that's coaching. That's coaching. Taking the canvas in front of us and figuring it out and, and finding the best athletic version of you, maximizing your limited training time, changing your mindset with regards to training versus exercise. You put all this in the pot and you stir that cauldron around and we figure out what will bubble up to the surface and come out as the best current athletic version of you. All right, this last question looks to be around swimming as well as around Alaska Man, which I'm also in my final phase of prep here. It's June 14th. The event is in 15 days. So knowing my own training habits and schedule and abilities, um, I still am doing a fair amount of volume as well as I will still push out a pretty big training week next week, about 10 days out, um, and then rest the final week um, to stay connected with that endurance ability. I don't do a lot of high quality work, so my breakdown is not as deep with regards to the volume. And so I'll be able to handle a couple more bigger days because there's no intensity really in there. And the recovery will come quickly because the volume will come off quickly. But that being said, um, learning a lot about the race, which is um, down to 100 people only this year, 104 participants. You know, when you have 104 participants, I would say 15 don't show up or don't make it to the start or something last second comes up. So let's say 90 to 95 starters, um, you know, and then how many finish? Probably a pretty good ratio. So maybe 75 will finish. So a lot smaller event. The race director was talking about how it was at 300 plus two years ago, last year at 200 plus, and this year just over 100. So not sure if that's due to many more events in the X-Tri world, um, the difficulty of Alaska Man, or um, I don't know, or the amount of bear sightings <laughs> and moose attacks. So anyway, um, logistics and so forth has been interesting, learning a lot, cycling with lights front and back, running with running vests and bear spray and cycling with bear spray and learning all about that and compass and whistle and you need to have your phone with you at all times. Um, all interesting things. Um, even learned today that um, they recommend aero helmets and I'm not really huge on aero helmets when it comes to, you know, off events like this, of course, for Ironman triathlon or where you're looking to put forth a fast time or qualify or do something special in Kona, of course, every piece of advantage and time and energy savings you can get is the great. But there, I wasn't really thinking of it, planning on it, but they recommend aero helmets. Why? Not for the aero function on the bike, but because bears, when going for your neck, the back of your neck, the aero helmet has been shown to help due to the extension and the protection. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so, yeah. So bear safety will be a big discussion. 
Um, hi, Chris. A uh, couple of questions for you. Okay to address on the podcast or just re- reply via email. This came May 15th, May 14th. So again, I'm running behind. Alaska command, we are getting close. What are you doing to start acclimatizing uh, to the cold water? Anything? Well, um, the bay is 57. I learned today that the, um, excuse me, the bay is 60, San Francisco Bay. So um, quite tolerable um, in a wetsuit. And um, so nothing that dramatic there um, without thermal. And then uh, I learned today or yesterday that the water currently in Seward is 52, 10 degrees Celsius. They're expecting it maybe to get colder due to the spring melt and um, colder water to come in. I'm expecting 48 to 52 in my prep. And um, yeah, I might head up to Donner Lake this weekend up in Tahoe because the snow melt is so aggressive there currently with these higher temperatures that the lake there is about 55. So I would like to jump in there in the morning when it's still nice and cold, use the thermal suit, use the thermal cap, use the thermal undercap, use the, and so forth, um, to do some um, dry run testing, dry run. Uh, the pun is intended, but it's not dry, it'll be wet. Um, so, but yeah, nothing really, because again, um, can you really simulate 48 degree water and effectively have a normal day? No, you're going to be cold. And I'd rather not think about it too much in that respect. Um, so I've not done much for it. Um, super cold water has not really been a big concern with my past experience. Um, the technology of wetsuits, I'm using a Roka thermal wetsuit. Um, so for extra cold water, plus the cap, plus the booties, um, if needed, will all, I believe, be plenty. Yes, my face will be freezing cold, and that part will be a little weird. And yes, transition one will be a little bit longer because you're like comple- completely surprised by um, how stiff and numb you are. But it's an hour swim, and I'm confident to feel good through it. Um on a social swim Friday, the day before the race, will you be planning on actually doing some real swimming? Yes. Or more or less jumping and dipping in the water. Would you mind if I shadow you a bit once we're out there? Sure. More than welcome to. Um, swimming with ankle band. What's your thought? I recently met a triathlon coach who is all about ankle band swimming. Yes, there is a um, movement about um, I know Matt Dixon and Purple Patch is big in it. Um, I know Tower 26 got a lot of that from Matt. Um, I know Matt well. He lives about two miles from me. Um, we're in the same community. I'm not big on the ankle bands. Um, let me just read the rest of the question before I answer it. When asking about uh, the purpose, she explained that it helps with open water swimming by bettering your body posture and increasing arm tur- turnover. Um, uh, <laughs> you can hear by my sigh what I think about that. I can't find much about it online. I come from a swimming background and know a few professional open water swimmers. I don't think any of them ankle band swimming. Exactly. <laughs> it seems to be a triathlon thing. I do not see professional triathletes. Triath- I do see tri- professional triathletes do it as well. Yes. Um, again, Matt is big on this. Is it worth to spend some time doing or would you say not really? 
just two schools of thought. Um, I can see how ankle band swimming helps. Um, I can see how creating the drag of ankle bands and truly using your upper body and truly pulling through the water and not assisting at all with the kick and really creating the deadness of your legs just dragging along is very beneficial. It does create strength. I agree on that fun. Too often, when we're non-swimmers, ankle bands mean our feet just drop. That's not helpful. Then, of course, you throw a pull buoy in. What becomes an, a liability then is, and we're getting into the details here, your hips start swinging side to side if you're not a swimmer swimmer because the rotation remains pretty hard without the feet balancing out the hip rotation of our swimming as our shoulders rotate and it tends to look more like snaking through the water than it does strengthening and improving your freestyle stroke um, arm turnover sure um, <clears throat> body posture it's tough to tough to really justify that again um, most of the open water swimmers 10k swimmers at the olympics worked with two of them in the last two Olympics, they both, we don't use ankle bands. Again, it's my train of thought. It's how I go about it. Are there some great swimmers and really successful swimmers that use ankle bands? I'm sure there are. I just don't subscribe to the approach and theory. I'd rather do other things to create the same effects versus ankle band swimming. Um, I've used ankle bands plenty of times. I've used them for my Attilo swim run training, and that was for a reason of getting used to the feet being a drag because of the sneakers being worn. And there, I actually like it. There, putting ankle band on while wearing running shoes, while the buoys are in your legs, and then swimming with the paddles, whether you're in your um, swim run suit or not, I think is an extremely helpful um, um, uh, technique, tool, whatever. Um, simulation, that was the word I was looking for. Um, that works very well. It really does set you up for the fatigue and the, the way you feel in swim run after having a run and not really using a kick when you swim because you, you start cramping and your hip flexors and it's just hard. You're 25 miles into running and you're on your 15th or so on swim and you just, you're not using your kick much and your feet do drag. And so having that ankle band training with paddles creates a better feel and strength for the water. So am I maybe talking in circles there because the value of that in triathlon might be similar? Yes, I can see that argument, but again, I don't apply ankle band swimming. Um, what's the second part of your question? Lastly, I've been doing, uh, I've been dealing with knee issues all year. Seems to be runner's knee. Um, first thing I'll say there, hamstring development. You can even have that impact in, uh, well, 10 days out, not really. Um, but I'm not sure if it's from biking often, running quite often or whatnot. At this point, I'm not even able to train at all, it's gotten so bad. I was able to get some training in over the past four months, but now, but I'm obviously now starting to worry greatly about my fitness going into Alaska, man. 
Any recommendations on this specific type of injury or ways to keep my fitness up over the next six weeks without being able to do any cycling or running at this point? Not really. And some hiking, it hurts. Hiking too, which is so difficult, will just exasperate the knee issues if those hamstrings and glutes aren't firing properly in that up and down, especially in Alaska, where those last um, six miles are so crazy straight uphill. There will be no running, only steep, steep hiking. Um, some swimming, but even that hurts over the next six weeks. Um, I'm starting the race no matter what. I've lowered my expectations given my lack of fitness, but still want to see if I can complete it. All right, yeah, so I think I answered most of that. Yeah, th it's hard to say what the knee issues are coming from, how they feel. It would be trying to pinpoint what those could be. But again, bike fit and hamstring development would really help that. Get your glutes firing. Get your hamstrings firing. It is a constant theme among athletes um, that they're not using those glutes and hamstrings well enough. So hope that answered it all. And I will um, probably call it on emails right here. So I get a lot of emails from athletes that are trying to figure out their workout or apply their workout prescription when they're coming off, let's say, a big travel day, or they're at their new location, or they're sick, um, or they have family stress, or they're working on a major project at work, and the outside life stresses from training, from our athletic self, are a lot. And many of us are able to mentally put those aside and to say, all right, I'm gonna focus on this workout, on this training be the athlete that I want to be and um, think it through like that. But yet, physically, our body can't separate from that. Mentally, we're able to. We're thinking, overcoming. We're projecting on who we want to be. We're able to work through and compartmentalize that. But again, physically, our body is still under that load. Our body is still responding, absorbing, dealing with the stress. Our body still is trying to figure out time zones and fatigue and confusion. And so what becomes important on this is recognizing that for your training and what the best possible outcome is. I tell most of my athletes and I try to remind most of my athletes that when you're in a new time zone, let's say you just got off a plane or let's say you've been traveling all day, or let's say you worked late until the evening, or let's say you had family commitments, children commitments, wife commitments, social commitments, um, whatever the personal commitments are until late at night, and now you wanna get your workout in. I get it. I love it that you're that focused and that diligent and that disciplined and doing it like we've said in the past because you said you would. Um, it's a workout, it's listed, you want to do it right. But we want to think together on the, the puzzle that we're working on, which is your physical and mental and spiritual gains in order to get you where you're going. And part of that is, is this puzzle piece, this workout, what is the best possible outcome for when my body is healthy, strong, rested, adapted, low stress, low fatigue, low adrenal fatigue or stress situation to have the best possible workout. 
And with that, that means in many cases that that late night workout, that that off time zone workout, that under stress load workout, that um, time shortened workout is best to be done easy. And I know many of you might say, well, the prescription and being an athlete versus exercising and so forth, I get it. But when we think of it that if at 11 o'clock at night, you're going to try to do some hard intervals and then still have an effective morning workout or next day workout or skip sleep due to it and therefore, um, you know, try to be effective in the next two, three, four workouts over the next few days, that is not keeping the big picture and again, the athlete's mindset in mind. How am I progressing? How am I moving forward? What is the best possible um, outcome here? And in those cases, the workout of doing it easy, doing it relaxed, doing it with good motions, good form, good technique, proficient, is way more important than getting a good night's sleep or then moving on with your day and allowing the windows of when the training is going to be effective for you, successful for you. Because we want that double effect. We not only want the adaptation and stimulus, we also want the motivation, confidence, and the dopamine hit that makes us feel good about our progression. Wow, that was a good workout. I feel good. I'm starting to get fit. I'm starting to really feel connected to what I'm doing. I'm really starting to see the progression. Wow, I was tired yesterday or last week, and look how strong I still am. I'm able to execute these intervals. Those are the workouts we want. Now, that might mean we have to put it off a day or two because currently, by doing it tired or under load of stress or fatigue or a long work day or travel and time zone change, we're not setting ourselves up for success for that. Now, could we possibly have a great workout? Yes, but there's downstream effects. One... Right, if it's late at night, for example, it means because we went harder, the heart rate's elevated, a lot of more a lot more physiological things are happening. The lack of sleep because we're wired, we're we're pumping, it'll take us longer to fall asleep. We might even need to eat something or hydrate, and therefore our body's still doing different functions versus getting ready to shut down and sleep and rebuild and regenerate. That will limit that. And then also that workout might have had an effect there briefly and you touched on some good fitness but it wasn't truly front to back all good feeling strong and connected and we're not reaching for little tidbits and morsels of workouts always of insights we want the full training plan and so doing an easy workout under these circumstances is great and it is a good reason to let go and not overthink the prescription, the RX. Instead, think of it like I will execute this workout better tomorrow or in a few days. I might have to shuffle some things around. It was unexpected, therefore I just went easy. Now, many of you that are coached by me know that if this happens all the time, or five, six days or times in a row, I will start to question like, wait a moment. Okay, what's going on? Do we need to adjust the training plan because you're just under a heavy workload or something else is going on or you're getting sick or this major travel? Well, then, yeah, I need to rewrite the workouts. I need to rewrite that week 
and adjust it for this because there is no running away from our body. There is no training through our body. It has its own signals, its own language, its own communication, and its own systems of how it shuts down or adapts and absorbs and um, rebuilds from the training. We can't, with our mind, tell our body all the time what to do. It will resist. It will shut down. It will do its things separately. And what, I mean, of course, going into the overtraining and overreaching aspect is a great example of that. And I don't want to go into that topic just right now today, but more be okay with going easy when the circumstances of life or work or family or health or travel don't allow the proper workout as listed. All too often I get emails or Training Peaks updates from athletes who at 11 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock at night, 4 o'clock in the morning, all kinds of bizarre times, 3.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning, um, do a workout and they're looking for the benefits, the adaptation, the growth. That's going to be quite limited. And also they're going to realize or they often realize that didn't work out as well. I should have just gone easy. Now I'm sort of tired from having tried and it's going to compromise the next workout. And so now we've hit two, three workouts where it's like that and we don't want that. So give yourself that freedom. Again, this is a hobby. We chose to do this. And if the best possible outcome is today to go for an easy spin or on a gym bike, because that's where you are with your travel, or to an easy run or a stretch out swim, and then regroup, restart, refocus when we're asleep and adjusted and ready and stress and adrenals and everything is a little bit more balanced, we then hit it well. All right, so that'll do it for this week on the Weekly Word Podcast, episode 107. I hope to talk to you guys in a few days again. Um, I will dive into Alaska Man, race strategy, race plan, what I did to prep for it, and of course, answer some more emails. I have a few questions remaining. And finally, I also want to dive into a bigger topic with regards to training, mindset, and how to take a long-term view towards the trajectory of desired outcomes that we're heading to. But that's all next week in episode 108 of the Weekly Word Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I kept this one a little bit shorter. Hopefully I got through it pretty quickly and um, in a focused manner. And I will talk to you all next week. Thank you so much, as always, for doing what you do. And that is listening and sending in questions and providing feedback on what you would like to hear more of on the Weekly Word podcast. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next week.